Okay. There's a lot uh, of substance to this message. Let me honestly say two things about this message. There's a lot of substance to it. Um, and some of it's difficult. Some of it's been difficult and convicting for me. Uh, and so here's the request I want to make of you that uh, not, not in listening to me, you can take or leave what I say, but in listening to the scriptures and to listening what the spirit might speak in this time, uh, avoid the temptation, which creeps in for, I think, all of us at points when we're hearing a sermon to think, man, I really hope so-and-so is listening. Uh, and just put your name in that spot and allow the spirit to speak to you. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is because there's a lot of substance here, uh, I've cut out all my funny stories, which were very funny, uh, and I'm cutting out the review of what we've been doing because I want to get into what we're, we're doing, and I, I don't want to talk too long tonight. So just to pick up where we kind of left off last week, not so much to review, but uh, we came from this passage in 1 John where, where 1 John talks about the love that God has among Father, Son, and Spirit, talks about the love that God has for us, and talks about that love coming to life in us. And, when, and I put this statement on the screen, that our confession of Jesus as Messiah and Lord places us within this community of people, this community of people who are abiding in God and loving as Jesus loves. And so I said that the ethos of community uh, ethos meaning the characteristic spirit of our culture, of our era, the season of our life together as a church, of our community, as it shows up in our beliefs and our aspirations, is going to be marked by love and by grace. Last week we talked about love. This week we talked about grace. So uh, uh, editing last week's kind of concluding statement to say this. The characteristic spirit of the church community is cross-shaped love, which we talked about last week. You can go back and listen to that if you missed it. It's online. And adding this week, unearned grace among its members. This is my sentence. This is not from the Bible. So if you want to quibble with some of the details of it, you're certainly free to do that on your own. You don't need to quibble with me. Uh, but uh, that was a joke. This is just a really small, funny thing <laughs> that wasn't funny. Um, so... So the characteristic spirit of the church is cross-shaped love and unearned grace among its members. Uh, before we get into some of the application, excuse me, I'm destined to knock that over. Before we get into some of the specific application for this, uh, I want to identify kind of this broad theme in this passage uh, and in a couple of other passages, but so you know where we're going, so you kind of know where the, the application is headed. I want us to see three ways that I think this truth, what John writes and what the scriptures reveal about Jesus and his, intentional, his intention for the way that his people live and function together, uh, I want to see three ways, that I want to talk about three ways that this should impact our life together, and they are, we should be people who are known for reactive grace. We're going to come back to these, and I'm going to define them, and we'll look at the scriptures on them. Proactive grace and radical forgiveness. So these are our three points of application that we'll come back to. Before we do that, uh, we'll circle back to it. But let's look at this idea that I'm suggesting that unearned grace should be the characteristic spirit of the church. John doesn't actually use the word grace, in this passage that we've been looking at, 
But verses 16 through 19 demonstrate, I think, in a really clear way how grace comes alive in the community of God's people. John writes this, And we have known and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. This is what makes love complete for us, so that we may have boldness and confidence on the day of judgment. Because just as he is, so are we within this world. Then he says, there's no fear in love. Complete love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and anyone who is afraid has not been completed in love. We love because he first loved us. I want you to notice just a few things about this passage, kind of looking at it from a wide view before we get into those applications. In verse 17, John writes, just as he is, Jesus, so are we within this world. This broadens, I think, the reach of this idea that we talked about last week, that we are here to love as he loves. In the way that Jesus loves us, we're meant to love one another, John says explicitly in, in the fullness of this passage. This statement, just as, he, just as he is, so are we within this world, I think is intended to communicate a broader sense in which we're meant to live and love and be as Jesus is. Um, so I think we can safely read here as it relates to grace, just as he has given grace, so we give grace within this world. And I think that's true given the context of what John says here. And I believe it's true because the scripture says that very explicitly in other places. And we'll, we'll see a couple of those as we go. Verse 18, John says something interesting. There's no fear in love. Complete love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and anyone who is afraid has not been completed in love. A love that is complete, John says, has to include the giving of grace. He doesn't use the word grace, but that's what this statement means, because the fear of punishment only exists between us. This is true in a, in a vertical way as we relate to God, but it, the fear of punishment only exists between us in the absence of an expectation of grace. If we expect grace from each other, we don't fear punishment. If we fear punishment, then there's an absence. We're missing that expectation of grace between people. If we don't expect grace, we expect our wrongs or our perceived wrongs sometimes and our sins and our imperfections to be held against us. And John says where there is completion, where we are fulfilling this charge to be as he is in this world, that doesn't exist. There's no fear of being punished because of the kind of love and because we expect grace. We don't expect our sins to be held against us. And then in verse 19, he writes very simply, we love because he first loved us. And this is the definition of grace, being loved first by God, not because we earned it, not because we initiated it, but because God simply chose to love us. That's grace. Paul writes about it this way in Romans 5. This is all based on what the Messiah did. While we were still weak, at that very moment, he died on behalf of the ungodly. It's a rare thing to find someone who will die on behalf of an upright person, though I suppose someone might be brave enough to die for a good person. 
But this is how God demonstrates his own love for us. This is how he loves us first. The Messiah died for us while we were still sinners. Not after we got it together. While we were still sinners, God loved us first. That's what John says is the definition of the love of God. And I think that defines grace for us. If we go back into this 1 John passage and we look at that last verse, we love because he first loved us. This, I think, is a reference back uh, to what Paul has told us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God showed us his love. So, if we're like him in this world, and if he loved us first, by loving us while we were still sinners, that's going to give us a landscape for the way that we love each other and the way that we show each other grace. Which is to say, while we're still sinning, while we're still sinners... We love. We initiate love and grace toward each other. God loving us first, God loving us so much that he gave us his son, loving us in this active and sacrificial way, the Messiah dying for us while we were still sinners, that's grace. Paul also describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, this is how it came about. God was reconciling the world to himself and the Messiah, not counting their transgressions against them. Okay, this is how it works out. God was redeeming us, not while we were still sinners loving us, not counting our sins against us. And John says, just as he is, so are we within this world. So if we're going to show grace in the way that he shows grace, it involves not counting their transgressions, those among us who transgress against one another. That's going to define the kind of grace that we show one another. And then John goes on to say something remarkable, I think, that characterizes a community that extends grace as Jesus extends grace. There's no fear in that community. John says, we take the posture of grace toward one another that Jesus takes towards us. So that means we have a posture of grace toward one another while we're still sinners. And then we let that posture drive the significant and the insignificant details of our daily lives together. And the working out of that is going to mean we don't count each other's transgressions against one another. So this is the big picture, I think, of this passage. Let's get into some of uh, the application, which may be uncomfortable at times, for how this should shape and reshape us in those daily details of our lives. Specifically, I want to talk about those three ways that I put on the screen, that people who have known and believed in the love that God has for them, that's the premise for all of this, those of us who have known and believed in the love that God has for us, and who abide in God and who have God abiding in them, three specific ways those people show that they believe grace is real, and that in receiving grace from God, they understand they are meant to give it in the same way that they are meant to receive it. And, and um, that, that is this idea that the grace is unearned, okay? So those three ways are this, reactive grace, proactive grace, and radical forgiveness. We'll do them one at a time. Reactive grace. The question here, I think, is how does grace appear in us when we're reacting to a wrong or to a perceived wrong 
in someone else. When someone else has done something that they shouldn't have that offends us in some way or that directly injures us, how do we respond? What is our reaction? This overlaps with forgiveness, uh, but, but I do think there's a distinction here. So first, I think the scriptures have something to say about how we react in those moments before we even have time to be purposeful in forgiveness. Let me say this about this. I think we're being molded and shaped and grown up into people for whom the distinction between reactive grace and, and radical forgiveness gets smaller and smaller. I think the kind of reactive grace that we're meant to develop is going to ultimately, as we become mature, include forgiveness, meaning we're not going to have to work as hard, even if we react in grace in the moment, we're not going to have to work as hard to forgive because the nature, the forgiving, gracious nature of Jesus becomes truer and truer of who we are. So I think this distinction grows smaller, but the reality for all of us as humans is that I think there is a distinction so with reactive grace, I think there are two areas of focus. The first area of focus is our spirit, our heart, how, how we react internally. And the second area of primary focus, there's certainly we could add, we could make a list of these things. But for most of us, most commonly, it's our words. Uh, and I'll talk about both of those. Most of us don't punish when, when John says, uh, this space where love is complete, grace exists, we don't fear punishment. Most of us don't punish each other in community physically. Most of us uh, punish or withhold grace from one another first in our hearts, first internally. It always starts there. The posture of our spirit toward the other who has wronged us or disappointed us or who we perceive has done those things. Uh, then we punish or withhold grace with our words, words spoken or words not spoken. It happens in both cases. So let's look at what the scriptures have to say about our heart and our words as it relates to reacting to wrongs done to us with grace. James writes in James 2, judgment is without mercy, you see, for those who have shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Our heart, the posture of our heart in reaction, is it mercy or is it judgment? What is our immediate internal response? We could, I could list a dozen scriptures from the Proverbs and from other places that talk about the response of our heart when we're done wrong. That's where all of this, this grace, this reactive grace begins. But it extends beyond just what we're thinking quietly to ourselves that we don't say to other people. It extends into the words that we use or the words that we don't use. In Colossians 4, Paul writes, when you speak, make sure it's always full of grace and well-flavored with salt. That way you'll know how to give each, each person an appropriate answer. Our heart reacts with grace. Our words demonstrate grace. Paul says always. That's the standard. Uh, that we're going to fall short of, and I'll talk about how we deal with how short we fall, all of this at the end. But the underpinning of all of this, our capacity to react internally and externally with grace when someone has done something wrong to us, the underpinning of all of it is humility. In discussing how we respond with grace, even to those outside the church, so you, you see in the scriptures uh, an address to 
God's people of how we love and respond to each other internally in the church and also how we respond to people outside of the church. And there's a lot of overlap between those two. I don't think they're fundamentally different, but there's some different application. And so uh, in, in discussing how we respond with grace, even to people outside the church, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4. When we're slandered, we speak gently in return. To this day, we have become like the rubbish of the world, fit only to be scraped off the plate and thrown away with everything else. Our posture, our spirit reacts with grace, and then our words and actions follow, and that's only possible because we live in the humility of the spirit and we follow the model of Jesus. Paul says, even when those who don't know us, who aren't a part of the community of faith, slander us, we speak gently in return. The standard can't be different in the community of God's people. Paul says we react, John says we react to one another with grace, okay? So our posture, our spirit, and our words follow suit with that. Second area of application is what I'm calling proactive grace. I don't know if this is a real thing. I made made this up. Um, But I think this is a slightly different question about our posture. Uh, And I think it's a question about how we view, how we think of, how we treat one another before an offense occurs, or maybe, it may be more helpful for some of us to think, how we view, respond to, treat one another in between a past offense and a potential future offense. What kind of grace exists between us, not in response to something specific in the moment, but in a, in a kind of general sense. In Romans 11, Paul writes, in the same way, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's us, God's people chosen by grace. But, but if it is by grace, it's no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here's the, here's the point here. Paul is saying, those of us who have been chosen, those of us who have been saved by Jesus have been saved by grace. We've already covered that pretty extensively. He says, if it's grace, then it's not about our works. We're not chosen. God's posture toward us and God's reaction toward us is not based on what we have done. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So God's grace to us is not based on what we've done or not done. If it was, it wouldn't be grace, Paul says. John says we're like him in this world, which means our default view of and posture toward one another is no longer defined by the works of other people, by their, the good things they've done, by the bad things they've done, by the insufficient things about them. Our view of one another is defined by grace in the same way that grace has been extended to us. So I think there's a question for us in, in this area of are we inclined, either in general or there may be conviction for some of us in specific situations with specific people. Do we box people in? Do we define them by what we've known to be true of them in the past? And say, well, that's who they are, so that's what I'm going to expect and how I'm going to react. Do we expect the worst from people, either because they've given us reason to, that, this falls, un- that falls under this. People who have given us reason to expect the worst, what's our posture toward them? Or uh, it's okay to be honest with ourselves and say some people are just hard for us to like. And do we 
is our posture toward those people grace, the kind of grace that, that God has shown us in Jesus. A couple more scriptures about this area. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Take good care that nobody lacks God's grace. Don't let any root of bitterness spring up to cause trouble, defiling many people. When we don't like someone, and certainly when someone has wounded us, our view of them starts to change. It's normal, it's natural, it's human. But when we allow that to happen, when we allow grace to decrease, what grows in its place almost always is bitterness. And the reminder here at the end, I think, is very important for us. That bitterness defiles many people. Certainly it defiles me. When I allow grace to decrease, even for good reason, even because someone has hurt me in the past, when I allow grace for them to decrease, I'm defiled by that. But the writer of Hebrews says, you're not the only one who's defiled. Many people are defiled. It doesn't just affect you when that bitterness grows. It doesn't just punish the person from whom you're withholding grace. It spills into the whole community. Um, and I would do us no good by citing uh, examples of this, but any of us who've lived in community for any length of time have seen this happen. Most of us have caused it at some point. I have caused it at points. Allowed my bitterness to defile, to grow, to poison in the people around me. Paul reminds us also that this proactive grace for one another, and this is key, I think, the, the, the reason that we would have this posture toward one another is not just uh, good moral teaching. It's not just to be nice to those people who might do us wrong. It's about the gospel. In Romans 15, he writes this. Welcome one another, therefore, as the Messiah has welcomed you. The same concept is in play. As you've been taken in by the Messiah, take others in. To God's glory. Let me tell you why. The Messiah became a servant of the circumcised people in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. That is, to confirm the promises to the patriarchs and to bring the nations to praise God for his mercy. Our, this, this posture in between offenses, uh, this posture toward one another between times that we've been hurt by someone or disappointed by someone is supposed to reflect the posture of Messiah, the Messiah who Paul says became a servant of God's people to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. Jesus took the servant posture toward sinning people to demonstrate the truthfulness of God, to declare, to embody the big truths of God's love and God's grace for us while we were still sinning. That was the purpose of that. Our living as he lives in this world, our extending that kind of grace is not just about us and our relationships. It's about the gospel. This is a challenge for me. I think it's a challenge for a lot of us. But the beauty um, of these impossible expectations, because some of this feels impossible. It feels impossible at times to control the way I feel about someone who has wounded me again and again and again, or someone I just don't like. It feels hard to say, yeah, I feel, I feel confident that the posture I have toward that person, the way I'm likely to react to them in a future situation is gonna look like Jesus. 
The good news about the difficulty of that is that they push us out of our own capacities. Guess what? It is impossible for you to consistently live this out. They push us out of our own capacities and efforts to love and to show grace, and they require us to let the Spirit of God work through us. That's the only way that this difficult kind of love and grace is possible. In this beautiful poem that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 about love that we've all heard at weddings and and other situations, he writes that love is patient and kind and many other things. And then there's this statement that I love toward the end of that passage where he says, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. That's the kind of love we're meant to have for one another, just as a default. He uses that phrase, love believes all things. And I think that's instructive to us in the way that we sit postured toward one another. And that's possible not because people can be believed, just to be frank with you. I think when we talk about believing the best about people, as this passage points to, it's not primarily because, well, those people are believable or trustworthy all the time. That's not true for any of us. True for some, less for others, right? But it's not primarily about whether people can believed can be believed or be trusted to always do the right thing. This is not some kind of naive instruction that Paul's giving to just assume everyone's always going to do right by you or treat you the way that you want to be treated. But we can love one another and show grace to one another in a way that believes all things because we're believing. That believing is about believing that the cross is sufficient for the things that go wrong. It's sufficient to deal with the sins of others just like it's sufficient to deal with my sin. I have to believe that. And that changes the way that I'm postured toward people around me and enables me to believe all things, I think, in the way that Paul is pointing toward here. Because I see and believe that the Spirit of God is at work in the other just as the Spirit is at work in me and that God's going to do what he intends to do among his people. It's not about how reliable they are or how reliable I am. It's about God's work. Last thing on the list tonight is radical forgiveness. So even when we show proactive and reactive grace, and certainly when we don't, that's a big assumption that we're able to do that, but even when we do that, there will regularly still be times, as I described when I started into to re- describing reactive grace, there will still be times that we could say, I think I did react right in the moment. But, but as time has moved on, there's still a sin committed against me that either has to be forgiven or not. And, and there's a question about what kind of forgiveness is going to take place. And we have all kinds of platitudes about forgiving and forgetting and all that nonsense, Right? And it's easy to call it nonsense until we're in the moment, until we've been wounded, and we have to decide, what is my forgiveness going to look like in this situation, even if I reacted with grace in the moment? Uh, for some, as I said, as we grow up, that reactive grace will be sufficient, and you'll, you'll say, you know what? It was no problem. That grace that I reacted with in the moment is true and complete, and I've forgiven 
But at other times, we can respond in the moment with true grace and still find ourselves carrying the weight of that sin that's been committed against us in a way that just has to be dealt with. And Jesus says to us in that moment, this very, very easy thing. Yes, if you forgive people the wrong they have done, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, neither will your your heavenly father forgive you what you've done wrong. This is a difficult passage. This is a difficult two verses. I preached on it in the summer. It's on the internet if you want that decoded. Uh, I'm sure I did a pretty good job of that back in June. But uh, the the bottom line message is clear. If you've been forgiven by the Father, this is the theme throughout. If you've received this, then you give it. If you've been forgiven, then you forgive. Forgive. That's the clear word from Jesus. And when Peter asks him just how serious he is about this, he says this. Peter came to Jesus and, Master, he said, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? I wouldn't say seven times, replied Jesus. Why not 70 times seven? I just want to tell you that I've grown up in the church my entire life, and I've heard multiple lessons on forgiveness that are contradictory to what Jesus says here. They give us all sorts of space for putting limits on the way that we forgive people. And I just, there's just no space in what Jesus says for limits. Unless you're going to count to what's that, 490 and keep a record and live by that. That's still a lot of forgiving that Jesus is calling us to. Paul is quite blunt about how this works itself out among us. In Ephesians 4, he writes, Don't disappoint God's Holy Spirit the spirit who put God's mark on you to identify you on the day of freedom. All bitterness and rage, all anger, stuff's packaged together with this statement. Instead, be kind to one another, cherish tender feelings for each other, forgive one another, just as God forgave you in the king. That's the definition of forgiveness for us. That's the radical nature of forgiveness. You forgive in the way that God forgave you in Jesus. And we've walked through what that looks like, initiated by him while we were still sinners. Unearned grace, Paul says, it's how we live together. So this is the big picture, I think, of grace defining the way that we relate to each other, of a community that's marked by grace. We react to one another with real grace. We live with a default posture of grace toward one another so that we recognize in ourselves, and that we recognize in our midst a graceless reaction. This is part of the deal, and we're going to read one passage at the end that's going to encourage us to live this way and to correct each other when we don't. So we react, we, we, we learn to recognize in our own hearts, and we learn to recognize in the, in the reactions of our brothers and sisters, gracelessness, reactive gracelessness, proactive gracelessness. A reaction that doesn't believe the best about the other, that doesn't see the spirit at work in the other. A reaction that isn't from the spirit. And then radical forgiveness in all these spaces where we fail each other. And those spaces are many. A kind of forgiveness that doesn't make sense in this world. And I'm not, I initially was going to spend most of my time on forgiveness in the sermon, but I, I did that in June. But I just want to say that this is 
a kind of forgiveness among us, a kind of grace among us that should be conspicuous to people outside the church. It should look weird. It should be obvious. It should make people ask questions about who we are and why we live this way together. Let me say a couple of quick things about all this, and then I'm done. Um, The first thing I want to say kind of as a postscript is the nature of our love and grace for one another can't be condescension. Um, it's It's not something that carries with it a residue of superiority because someone has hurt me and now I'm gonna be the bigger person and show them grace. Paul says that we should consider other people and listen, when he says these things about other people, he's not talking about some elite class of people among us. He's talking about the same people that he has to write, everything he has to write because they're a mess. The New Testament exists because the church is a mess, primarily. So when Paul talks about other people, he's talking about those people. He's talking about me, he's talking about you and all of our junk. And he says, consider others better better than yourself. He says, follow the example of Jesus, who though he was God, though he was superior and always right, didn't grasp that superiority, but instead took the form of a servant and live like that among one another. The kind of love and grace God made to flow between us as his people is not grace with a smirk. It's just not. It's a giving of ourselves, a renouncing of our rights, a recognition that we're no better than the person who's wounded us. A sincere recognition that I need to be loved in the same selfless way that Jesus is telling me to love them right now. So if I'm withholding that love in any way, if I'm making someone else earn it, or loving out of some kind of condescending pity that puts me on a pedestal looking down at them, I'm a hypocrite. I'm perpetuating a false love because that's not the kind of love that God loved me with. That's a false love, it's a false grace, it's a false community. This doesn't, for the record, prevent us from taking seriously the faults and the sins of others. What it does is it requires us to recognize that those things are dealt with by the cross. Not by my punishment, not by my scolding words, not by my love or my grace or my forgiveness withheld. That's not how other people's sin is dealt with. It's dealt with in the cross. And if someone isn't safe because of the sins of others, of course, we act in wisdom in that situation. And biblical community works together to figure that out. But we deal with real sin in real ways always so that the cross can work in that person's life. That's why we deal with each other's sin. No other reason. It's never to insert our own punishment. It's never to get vindication for ourselves. It's never to experience that moment of satisfaction that we get when we go, I was right and you were wrong and everybody in the room knows it now. It's not the point of dealing with each other's sin. So let's ask ourselves these questions tonight and then read one last passage. In the sins and the brokenness and the offenses that we find in each other, when I discover your sin, because it's encroached on my space, do I believe that the cross is sufficient for that? Or do I subconsciously declare that the cross is not enough 
and insist that your debt to me is outstanding and penalize you holding a sin against you that, by the way, God doesn't even remember. We're told that when, when we're forgiven, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That he remembers them no more. How am I going to hold against you what you've done to me when God doesn't remember it? When he's removed it from you, I'm gonna drag it back into your front yard. So it's important, I think, for us to ask ourselves, do we believe that the cross is sufficient for those things? Or do we believe that we have to do something? We have to impose some sort of penalty or wait for grace to be earned. Second question, when I'm able to see that your sin, that someone else's sin demands the cross, do I find that as a cause to judge you, to pity you, to condescend you, or do I find your need for the cross, for your sin, to be a point of true connection and kinship? This is all about how I see myself relative to you. When I discover that you're so much of a sinner that Jesus needed to die for you, is that a point of distance between us? Is that a, point, a moment of superiority for me? Or is that where I go, oh, we're the same? You and me, we're the same. Does it become a way that I identify with the person who's wounded me, instead of a reason to assume superiority or just put space between us because I think I need the cross less. Never say it, but that's what my actions suggest. It's hard, but it's the kind of maturity that I think the Spirit is moving us toward. And when we do it, it's beautiful. It's it's taking the way of the world's dealing with one another's brokenness and turning it on its ear with the upside-down kingdom that does something completely different and respond to people's brokenness. And we exist for that upside-down kingdom of God to grow in us, to grow in our kids. This, is, this has been one of the most important lessons for me to learn in raising my children. I have to teach them this. I can't just shelter them from the wrongs done to them by everyone else. I have to teach them the next generations of God's people. I have to teach them, we have to teach them to expect the sins of others to impact your life. But to be postured with grace and forgiveness so that the gospel is bigger than you. Because that's where it happens. The gospel is either bigger than us in those moments or everything we say about the gospel being bigger than us is just theory. That's just a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. I have to learn. I have to be discipled by you. I have to disciple my kids. We have to disciple each other, each other into this belief, this realization that you will be hurt. You will be wounded even within the community of God's people. And the opportunity there is for you to see the gospel work and be real in your life. Paul summarizes all of this beautifully when he writes this. These are the clothes you, God's people, must put on then since God has chosen you, made you holy, and lavished his love upon you. 
You must be tender-hearted, kind, humble, meek, and ready to put up with anything. You must bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against someone else, you must forgive each other. Just as the master forgave you, you must do the same. On top of all of this, you must put on love, which ties everything together and makes it complete. Let the king's peace be the deciding factor in your hearts. That's what you were called to within the one body. And be thankful. Let the king's word dwell richly among you as you teach and exhort one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with grateful hearts. And whatever you do in word or action, do everything in the name of the master, Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray.